Let's go to Space Blue Sky Learning, Episode 90, an interdisciplinary approach from industry to research. Today, Kevin and I meet with Michelle Jemrozik, who received her PhD from the Georgia Institute of Technology in 2003 in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering. Michelle has experience in both academia, the research and teaching in space image and video processing, as well as in industry, from automotive software and electronics, computer vision systems, biotech, and nanotechnology. More recently, Michelle completed the Interdisciplinary Space Master at the University of Luxembourg. And she's currently a research associate in the ST Computer Vision Group, CBI2 there. She's working on AI solutions for space and fraud detection. And of course, Dr. Jim Rosick is a member of the IEEE, Computer and Signal Processing Societies. Now, Kevin and I were lucky to be able to meet her at the International Astronautical Congress most recently in Paris, and we are excited to introduce her to you today. As always, we hope you'll stay tuned after for our takeaways. Michelle Jamrosic, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to catch up with you after meeting you recently at uh, the IAC there in Paris. Uh, before we talk a little bit about that conference and what you might have been doing there, tell our listeners a little bit about how you even came to be involved in, in space in general. Well, since Luxembourg was really putting forth a lot of effort to expand its economic infrastructure into the space ecosystem, it really came to mind that it might be a good idea to diversify my background. And so what I did is I joined the first cohort of the Interdisciplinary Space Master Program at the University of Luxembourg. And I joined it because it had really great aspects. I thought it had not only the IT, which is more of my area for space informatics and computer vision, but it also had a law component, robotics component, business component, entrepreneurship component. And so for me, that was just awesome. <laughs> and that's why I did it. So how did you end up in Luxembourg? Because I know that you were in the States originally, and then now you're abroad and working with a country that is obviously, as you said, focusing on space. And, and I know you have a background in, as you said, robotics as well, but let's go back a little bit earlier. So you got involved in robotics and STEM here in the States, or did you always had an interest? Um, not so much robotics, uh, but electrical and computer engineering. And I was lucky to have worked for General Motors. I'm near, from near Flint, and I got internships as a student. And therefore, that got me set up to have my first um, real full-time employment. And I ended up working in Luxembourg as an automotive software engineer. Oh, wow. Okay, so you were working for a company here at the General Motors, and they had a branch over in Luxembourg. Right. Wow, that's right. really cool. So you started as a student interning in your almost near, as you said, your hometown of Flint, Michigan. So yes. How did you get that as a student? Okay, so I applied and I was really lucky to have gotten it. And, um, I, I did actually, I think three altogether, but the first one, um, just applying and, you know, asking anybody, you know, <laughs> and I was able to do it the first summer and I was so lucky. And then the next summer I didn't have the opportunity and, but the third summer I did, and I didn't know, actually, no, it was the first summer. I didn't even know that I could get it. So I got a lifeguard job and I got a bartending job and I got, you know, I had already applied for the internship and they all came in on my birthday. 
<laughs> oh, wow. So you were a student in college then to clarify. So you were a student in college. Yes. And yes. you were applying. So you figured, oh, I'm not going to get this. That's pretty great. So it's like the lesson for our students there is you got to A, pay attention to what's being offered. Like, you know, because obviously it was being advertised and then mm -hmm. give it, a, give it a, a shot. So that's pretty great. Did you, yeah, uh, the co-ops. <clears throat> did you grow up in the Detroit area or uh, just attend college there in that area? No, I'm near Flint. So about, so in the Flint area rather than Detroit. Um, I was last in Detroit uh, 12 years ago and mm -hmm. they had really revitalized. You know, there was a real period of decline. Mm -hmm. And then it looked like the city was really trying to turn it around. Um, what was the, do you mind sharing uh, what it was like? Uh, did you ever work any in General Motors uh, in Michigan or was all of your GM time overseas? No, it was I worked for AC Sparkplug, AC West, AC Rochester. Um, and yeah, I did work at all those companies that are uh, pavement now. Really? It was kind of with coding yeah. too, right? Because I was checking out your bio. You were kind of involved on the front end. It was a programming, right? So was it involved in maybe some of the cars and the, the computer programming? Or what exactly were you doing there? Okay. My first internship, I worked in the plant. And I basically went around with all the different sets of skilled trades. And I, for two weeks, I was an electrician. For two weeks, I was a pipe fitter. For two weeks, I was a millwright. And it was basically to understand how the, the plant works and how the skilled workers interact with the production workers, interact with the management. And so that was great. I loved it. Mm -hmm. And But I also realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I, I loved certain aspects of it, but you know, I'm glad that I did go on for my full engineering degree. And uh, so that was my first experience. And then I worked also at AC West and I worked on the, the FCAR fuel rail system to reduce evaporative emissions. Okay. And it, I went out to the proving grounds in Arizona and we would run testing. We went to Death Valley, we did the, you know, the road right. trips and that was really cool. That was quite a long time ago, obviously. But that's how I got my, my position in Luxembourg in the end because I had already had these experiences. Um, so it sounds like the breadth of experiences you had early at least helped you make, make a really informed decision about the direction that you wanted to go. Uh, when did you know that um, computer engineering was your happy place or software or coding, at least back then early on in your career? When did the light bulb come on and you said, oh yeah, this is where I'd like to sort of go in this lane? Well, um, I started programming with punch cards in the eighth grade. <laughs> wow, that, that really dates you a little bit, doesn't it? It, it does, no, it does. No one even knows what punch cards in. I've only seen them. I never used them, but I did see a bunch of them one time. Yeah. No, and then maybe hidden figures. They know, the kids know the punch cards, right? Uh, yeah, but I was lucky to have gone to a school where um, one of the teachers, and I didn't appreciate this at the time, but he, you know, we had basic and we had uh, Pascal even in high school. And this is, you know, in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I remember those. I was not as good at Pascal. Uh, basic didn't have, basic didn't have a lot of functionality. I, I, I wasn't, I don't know if I was any good, but I was at the limit of my little teacher, you know, my, my teacher's knowledge then. Did, did, do you have a stack somewhere of punch cards in a storage locker somewhere with your name written on the top? No, I wish, right? Them? That could be museum quality. Yeah, but actually, but actually, I'm an electrical engineer by trade. Right. 
And uh, I thought I, and I, signal and image processing is really the area that I expanded to, but I always use software as a tool to implement my current work. Well, let's explain that for our students. So you're an electrical engineer and you said with, with imaging, right? So what does a person, what is a daily um, or say a weekly, what does that look like? Uh, you know, just to kind of give our kids an idea of understanding of what, how that might be different from some other engineering jobs. Okay. Now, are we talking just, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I have a PhD, so it's a little bit different. I'm a researcher. Right, right. So um, do we want to go lower level? or Let, let's, let's do both, actually. Yeah. Let's start lower level because we do have some students who want to go the engineering route, but we will have those who will want to go into more of the academia as well, or might not even realize that there are those kinds of options to kind of, you know, to kind of go down. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's just start off with my automotive um, programming work at General Motors, okay? So you start off and you don't know exactly what you're doing to begin with. It takes time, it takes training. And especially for a coding environment, it takes about, I would say about six months to get up to speed to, to know everything that you need to know how to do. Because I worked in a production environment. So that meant I, my, the software that I was working on would be the release of 200,000, 400,000 cars. And the recall potential is just such a big fear. And also the safety aspect is so important. So everything is very, very well planned and organized and you need to meet your deadlines. There's no, no being late and you need to be proactive in, in anticipating things that can happen that might go wrong in the future. Like for example, uh, we transferred chips. We went from an 8K chip, <laughs> dating again, to a 12K chip and <clears throat> to put inside the engine control module. And that meant that all of our release procedures needed to be updated and somebody had to foresee that that had to be done. So you have to like think about these things. So you work with, I did software, but I also worked very closely with the systems engineering group, which does all the actual physical onboard electronics and they all have to interface together. And then what I also did as I worked with the calibration engineers to um, develop the code, they, they would say what they wanted the code to do. And I would implement their, their wishes and we, within reason. It wasn't um, coding like I think some kids code now or a lot of people do. It wasn't right. like, you can't just do anything you want. You have to be very, very careful and you have to test every single um, bit of code that you write. And at the time I wrote an assembly language and uh, that's a little bit tedious. And then of course they moved on to C, but um, you need to be extremely careful. And then I would check my work. First, I would verify all the work that needs to be done. I, if there was a change to be implemented or a new feature to be added, like I added air conditioning to a, a small car. Um, then you go through the code and you need to find every single place that it needs to be changed. Oh. That's really, I mean, that's really, I'm just like taking this in for the first time thinking about I'm driving a car, but I've never really thought about, you know, you just assume, oh, somebody puts in an air conditioning, but you're not really thinking about all that kind of background coding that goes into that. I mean, I, I would figure that for the safety stuff, but. Yeah, let's, um, let's get a, a, in terms. If you had to reduce a modern car today to how many lines of code are in a modern car, what is your estimate? Oh, I can't. A even. million? Uh, I can't even tell you. That's I mean, our, our, our listings used to be this thick and it was double paged and it was like eight point font or something. And I'm sure they're like. <laughs> so let me make kind of a big leap here and you just correct me if I'm wrong. So 
they would have to do something like that with spacecraft as well, right? Testing for safety, making sure all that. So it seems like the background that you have with cars, it's it's also kind of something that we see with, with that spacecraft. So same kind of length, same kind of issues, or, or are there some differences? Um, well, similar issues. They're embedded systems, okay? okay? And everything has to be worked together. Everything has to be super verified. Everything has to be planned for. So there are a lot of parallels actually in, in the work that is done. And you know you have to communicate with your, you have an onboard computer that communicates with all of your subsystems. Right, yeah. would you explain for um, the audience embedded systems and okay. really the interface of software and hardware, would you mind sharing just a little background <laughs> for the people that aren't production engineers? Okay. So an embedded system means that you have a chip inside the unit that you want to control. Okay, so in you know, here's an example, the engine control module. It's just a little box, but it controls your vehicle. It controls the amount of fuel that gets injected when you're driving according to throttle position, air temperature, ambient environmental conditions. And that information gets updated like every, you know, so many milliseconds used to be 7.81 milliseconds. They would, that's a lot of things, the main variables would be updated. I have to ask you, why was that number chosen? It's because of the clock rate of the chip that was used. Thank you. So you, and you need to, something that's super important. You had to make sure that all of the code that needed to be updated and executed happened within that first time loop, the 7.81 milliseconds. And then you had a 16.56 millisecond loop that could, was updated less frequently in a 32 millisecond, whatever, you know, different things had to be updated with different levels of frequency. Got it. So it, it you just control your, your system with the so now you're So now you're in research. So let's talk a little bit about what the research end of that was. So you've got this background where you were learning all how all the parts come together, how they're programmed, how they work. And now you are researching. So let's go to that capacity. Okay. So I do uh, different things in research, like what I did at IC, but I'll, I'll just speak about that. I wrote two papers. One was about um, enhancing images that are collected in space so that you could determine like the pose of a spacecraft or um, determine de orbital debris in its position. So you could eventually, you know, glom onto that and remove it or do in-service um, refueling. And I do that with deep learning models. So that's uh, artificial intelligence. And deep learning just means that um, you have hmm, a network. And I don't, I don't know if people know what artificial neural networks are. Well, some of our students are really into AI, but I don't know if they know what you're saying with like the specific part of the networks. But feel free to bring it down to our level if, if, that, if that's possible. I'm just trying to figure out how to say it. Okay, you, well, basically you try to think of it, you know, as synapses in your brain, right? In nodes that can communicate with one another. And if we get an impulse, if we get an input, our brain generates a response. And that's kind of the idea behind neural networks. Deep neural networks are just a whole bunch more of synapses and, and nodes that happen in the brain. So it's just a bigger and bigger brain. Right. Okay. And uh, so that's, I guess, <laughs> you know, that's how that works a little bit. And um, <clears throat> I did another paper at, at the conference and that was uh, on reflective uh, GPS technology. So 
the idea was to determine, to see if it was possible to determine, to implement the algorithms necessary to determine soil moisture on a, on a CubeSat. Soil so, what? Mixture. Soil moisture. Moisture. Oh, moisture. Moisture. So, and that's important because you can, you know, consider drought conditions. You can consider crop health, you know, because we've got to feed the world right, right now with less resources. Right. Is that a passive signal that would just be yes. radiated up because of the, is it in the infrared or microwave or what, what sort of it's, wavelengths are you most interested in? Well, it's just, it's just a passive GPS signal. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's it's not a it's totally passive oh i'm sorry you're you're wanting the gps reflected gps signal off the surface of the earth collect exactly. that and process that because you know what it looked like that signal did when it left the source and yep. then you can handle what attenuation for the atmosphere and exactly. all the other oh that's very that's very novel because that that wave is already there, right? Mm, right, exactly. It's free, so it's a free it's wave. An they call it an opportunistic signal, originally mm -hmm. introduced by Martin Nira. It was originally called the Paris method, but the, the novelty of what I was doing was like, can we put it on a CubeSat? Is anyone going to fly your idea? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> how, uh, got... how, how big of a CubeSat do you need to do this? Well, this is, we had a one CubeSat, so we were just, this is more or less a feasibility study. Can I even implement the algorithms necessary on this CubeSat? To, well, it, sounds, to... it sounds like you, you should uh, work with the Wolfpack and <laughs> let's get this thing up in space. <laughs> uh, I know my, uh, the instructor that I was working with would really love to see that happen. Uh, that's very cool. I, I want to pivot back. You mentioned uh, your expertise in signal image processing. That is very much of interest to us, not uh, from a remote sensing standpoint, but we're going to we're trying to come up with a novel payload for an internal uh, monitoring of a mission that involves watching a biological uh, living thing uh, do some mm -hmm. digestion at a very small level. The constraint we have is we have a very small data budget for downlink, and mm -hmm. the goal is how do you maximize what you're learning from your experiment when you only have so many zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. Could you help us, uh, uh, could you share a little bit about signal image processing and, and just a high level overview for the layman about what does that mean? And maybe keep in mind our interest, uh, we're looking at growing, you know, cells digesting, you know, a matrix and then trying to image that. What, mm -hmm. what could you share with us about that? Okay. So in terms of, you know, are you talking about in situ? Yes. Okay. So first of all, the big important thing is what data do you absolutely have to collect? What data do you need to process? What data do you need to store? And what data do you need to downlink? Okay. So this, these parameters, these requirements must be carefully thought out, first of all. Then, can you be clever in terms of your data collection, in terms of onboard processing, such that you don't have to store everything and you don't have to downlink everything? Okay. So how, how can I do things the most efficiently? And I guess one of the practical things that we know in everyday life now is the compression of images, right? We have a, 
everybody works with JPEG images. Those are compressed representations of 2D projections. And so we say we are able to send this JPEG data to everybody in depending on we can choose like on our iPhone, you take a picture and you're just out having fun for dinner. And it says, how big do you want to send it? Extra large, you know, large, medium, small. And you decide, you know, what quality level you want to work with. And depending on that quality level, you um, use a higher compression ratio. So your image quality, if you use the smallest quality, it's not going to be as good, but you're going to be able to send it more easily. So what's my purpose? How much information do I actually need to receive in order to be able to ascertain the properties of, uh, of the picture that I just took? You know, oh, we're just having a birthday party, it's fun. Or do I need to have a high resolution image that I need to actually extract, you know, right, data. growth patterns or, yeah. So yeah, like it really- Photogrammetry, yes. Yeah, so these are the questions that have to really be answered. That's very- in the design. In the design portion of the of the project, it, as soon as possible. Is um, one last question. Do you uh, at your level? Do you ever work with? Uh, okay, you take an image, and then you take an image after a period of time of the same uh, content. Do you ever play that game of we only care about what has changed, so we can delete everything but you know where's Waldo kind of thing? What which one of these is not like the other one? Yeah, and so that's like the idea. This is an example. You can look up differential pulse code modulation. You know, you look oh, at wait, the wait. differences. You're say that phrase again. What was that phrase? Differential pulse code modulation. So that's a compression scheme that you use to reduce the amount of data that you send. Also, in the in our videos, right, the MPEG videos, we don't send, you know, a streaming set of twenty, you know, pictures captured at twenty four or thirty frames per second we're sending the differences between those images. We only send a new image like every 16 frames. And then in the beginning or in the middle, we send like the motion vectors to indicate how that image has changed. And so we, you know, we send those along until we get to the next reference. So there are a lot of tricks you can use in, um, you know, with, with representing the changes, super important to realize you don't need to send everything. You have a baseline, maybe you need to send the original every so often, right? But intermittently, you can just send, send the changes and you can reconstruct a quality image. Do, do you, when you talk about uh, motion vectors, are you talking about like individual pixels or? Um... What they, for the, you know, like I'm thinking JPEG here, JPEG, MPEG, they take a picture and they cut it up into blocks, okay? And what they do, they they what they do is perform what's called the discrete cosine transform on that that's a frequency representation of the 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 information contained in these 16 by 16 blocks then what they do is in the next frame they match that same you know pattern of of pixels to another place in the image so if they're if it's there's no movement they're going to be the exact same the differential the motion vector will be zero if, on the other hand, there's been change, there can be, you know, a, a, there'll be a translation. And so you'll say this patch here, or this, you know, pixel here used to be here. And okay. you encode the differences. But it's not exactly a pixel by pixel. It's a, more of a block by block processing. Block by block. Cool. Is that, 
something that you're looking on with your current research regarding the space and fraud detection. I was noticing that you're working on these kind of, uh, currently that research is focused on AI solutions. Can you share a little bit more about, about that in general? Okay, and I've got to put a pitch in for my group. I'm working for the computer vision group, CVI2 at the S&T University of Luxembourg. And my professor is Jamila Aouda, and I have to put a pitch in for her. But so the deep fake and fraud detection is um, basically, you know how all of these videos can be manipulated now such that you don't know if it's real or fake. Yeah. And so what I'm working on now is trying to ascertain in more robust ways if it's a fake, because the fakes are getting better and better and better. And I also would like to get involved in ed educating younger people and old people in general as to how to differentiate between yes, manipulated content. Yeah, manipulated content and... Um, non-manipulated non content. Oh my gosh, that would be a great like a course just to, not so, for, for young people, for older people, right. for the elderly. So, right. So now you're in forensics as well, right? Yeah. So, you know, they're all, they're all, you know. Very interesting. <laughs> the applications are quite broad. Uh, mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, I, so I, I'm kind of like trying to take it all in, right? You've done a lot. I mean, but at the same time, while you've got this amazing background, you've been able to kind of hone it and keep it, you know, like it with the times. And it's just kind of like that background knowledge is taking you now to this new area. Tell me a little bit about the Space Master uh, program that you just completed and, and where that's at. And then we'll wrap up with the final question, which is usually just about, you know, any advice that you have. So tell me about that Space Master program. Okay. It was hard. <laughs> it was, you know, as you can see, I'm a little bit older. And it was a challenge and it was, but it was a conscious decision to fill a gap because I did have a career gap. I don't know if you know, because I had young kids when my, my, my husband suddenly died. So I had to take a break from my research and that really hurt. That was really difficult for me. And I just did whatever I could do to keep, a, you know, keep going during that time. And then finally my kids got to the point where they were okay. And I could then start to focus on me and I had to fill a little bit of a of the technology gap because it just goes so, so yeah. fast. But at the same time, I've also found that even though it goes so fast, I still have the fundamentals and I always did. And I just, not always, but you know, since having completed my PhD and uh, yeah, a little rusty, but it's nothing you can't recover from. So okay. the Space Master was, yeah, that is really important because I yeah. didn't have the confidence that I should have had and probably still don't. <laughs> and, you know, but it's still there. And it, it, and it, and I have a different viewpoint on things. I can step back and look at things from a broader perspective and the utility of it rather than just from a, a very pinpointed point of view. So the Space Master was really cool. Um, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to learn a little bit more about the space law uh, component because that's so important in terms of space debris and liability and all that kind of stuff that, you know, if we launch a spacecraft, we're responsible for what happens to it. So you're learning, like air. you had mentioned earlier, like the different parts. So part of that program is getting, you know, some kind of education on all these components of that larger industry so that you can be well-rounded, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. And unlike, you know, like when I did my master's, I've, I did a, a couple of masters. <laughs> and, you know, there you'd have four or five classes per semester. Here we had nine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it was pretty intense. <laughs> and wow. It's, and, and you, of course, to... were working as it's in some capacity. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I, it was supposed to take two years. I, I slowed it off and did it in, in six, three years. Well, um, what's next for you? What's your, if you could say, well, this is my, I, if I could create my own next position, what does that look like? Honestly, I'm really trying to figure that out. I'm not sure. I hate to leave the technical. So it's combining technical, maybe with policy, maybe with, you know, with projects. I'm really into earth observation technologies. I really think that we need to do more to save this planet and, and well, to feed the hungry world that we're going to have and the, address some of the migration crisis that will follow. Um, I want, no matter what it is, I want to be passionate about my work and I want to be inspired by it. And I want to, you know, or if I can't, don't have, have the complete choice, then at least I want my work to enable me to fulfill my life and, and, and do something good with it. Uh, very well said. Gosh, I think that's actually great parting words of wisdom, but, and, and I really want to focus on what you said about the fundamentals. Like we do a little takeaway afterwards and that's where mine's going to be. I, I think that for our listeners, recognizing that, sure, you can keep advancing on, but if you don't have the basics, the basics is the root of all of it, right? And so if you're mm -hmm. weak on something at the, at the lower level, just because you've been passed on, that's probably not the best way to do it. It would be better to just have that stronger basis and the other stuff you'll catch up to faster, as you said. That's really, I think that's really um, astute. For our listeners, is there any final takeaway pieces of advice that you would have for maybe students who, who are interested in getting into something similar, whether it's research or just by recognizing the kind of work and the ethic that you've had over all this time? I'm gonna pick up on your fundamentals. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And, and I know people say that and they don't really mean it. And sometimes you'll have teachers that will say that and you ask the question and you're just flipped back. Use the resources that you have around you. Luckily, we have you know online resources like Khan Academy and a lot of other resources, but find a mentor if you can. Like I think what you guys are doing is great because it's hands-on. I don't love the idea of education by Google, completely I, it's to me it's a supplement it shouldn't be a replacement but it's really really important that if you know you have a weakness to address it as early on as possible because it, you will suffer in every way and sometimes the gap that you're thinking that you're having is nowhere near as large as it actually you know right. it's could be tiny but you're just missing oh I don't understand logarithms so that means I can never understand what a decibel is um fix it as soon as possible because it will affect your self-confidence. It will affect how you present yourself. It will affect almost every aspect of your life and your happiness. And like, it might be the difference between you getting a scholarship and being able to really go to the best school. And it's not that you know really uh, less, it's just that you don't know, you don't recognize it yourself. Because you can't see the connections, I think, at that point. And I think that's really important a message. Uh, that's an important message for our parents to hear as well, because it's really less about, oh, look what, what class we've elevated to, but rather have those important foundations been laid in order to help make those connections later. Yeah, we get as much, get as much hands on as you can. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, we wrestle now with, um, you know, inflated grades and the perception of a child's knowledge versus what they really know. Yeah. So that's what we wrestle with. I want to thank mm -hmm. you for your time. I, I have a, I'm, I'm going to ask you some follow-up <laughs> questions as soon as we stop recording, but uh, I, thank you so much uh, for sharing about uh, the beginnings, how you became an engineer yeah. 
And thank you for sharing this wonderful content about some of the state of the art things going on, especially with respect to aerospace. So thank you. And I'm so glad that we got to meet you at ISC. We look forward to maybe working with you again, seeing you. At yeah, great. Conferences. We'll see you thank soon. Thank you. Well, it was really nice seeing Michelle again. And I was kind of, you know, I saw her bio prior to meeting with her, but I didn't really understand how all the pieces fit together. She's really got a diverse background uh, that she's been able to kind of move forward with and, and use to kind of uh, stay with the times, as we said before. And I really thought that thing about the fundamentals is really what allowed her to do that was really, really important. Uh, agreed. And she has a, a she has some some deep domain knowledge and some very state of the art um, processes and technologies that um, uh, when she decides where she goes from uh, this university in Luxembourg, uh, I feel like she's going to have a lot of opportunities. Yeah, well, I feel like there are many ways that she could kind of mentor some of your student teams now. So it sounds like she's looking for a place to get involved in that. So um, I hope that we get to see her there. So if you enjoyed this episode where we kind of give you the different uh, career fields that might be in your future, we hope that you'll join us again next week as we say, let's, let's go, go to space. space.